Hi, and welcome to Understanding Dysphagia Podcast, a 10-part series with the Dysphagia Outreach Project. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, regularly the host of First Bite, Fed, Fun, Functional, a speech therapy podcast brought to us by speechtherapypd.com. In honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pulled some of their amazing leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum, as well as raising awareness regarding the dynamic volunteer work that DOP does every day for individuals of all ages with dysphagia. And this episode is dedicated to pediatric feeding disorder. Can I get a whoop whoop? I'm a little biased. This is the world that I live in and I'm really excited about today. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest, Kristen West. Kristen is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. I'm hoping I said it right. In addition, she's a doctoral student pursuing her educational doctorate at Slippery Rock University. Clinically, Kristen has um, experience in a variety of pediatric settings, including early intervention, pediatric acute care, outpatient, and school-based services. Prior to joining Edinburgh University, she helped establish a public school safe feeding program and served as the safe feeding consultant for the same educational agency. Currently, Kristen serves as the Director of Education for the Dysphagia Outreach Project and is also a member of SIG-13. In addition, she continues to maintain a PRN position at a local pediatric hospital. Kristen has presented at the local, state, and national levels on pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. She is passionate about advocating for feeding and swallowing services for children and their families across the continuum of care and ensuring equitable access to services for all children in need. And y'all, she is genuinely a kind and phenomenal human. And I am over the moon and stars that she's here today. So Kristen, hi, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I hate hearing my bio read. It always makes me blush, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all right. At the end of mine, I always say, and she has ADD and ADHD. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> like, and that's how we all get it all done, right? We, we all just truck through our anxieties and our to-do lists and just, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, honestly, for me personally, I find balance in the garden. So when I'm stressed, I go out and I pull out a bunch of weeds. It helps to murder the bad plants. Somehow that helps me handle all the stress and anxiety of life. <laughs> yes. I, I just uh, drink caffeine. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but on Saturday mornings, this is how you balance with a mimosa and or a manmosa, which is a sour IPA with a splash of OJ. Oh. Highly unofficially recommend. Just saying. <laughs> Never had one of those before. I'll have to write that oh. down. <laughs> yes, yes. Squirrel number one, y'all welcome to the show today. Here we are. Okay. So hi, you and I have met ever so briefly, but we're in the world of PFD. And let's be honest, the world of PFD can be unique. It can be joyful and kind, and it can be insanely competitive for no valid reason whatsoever. But I like to think that we're on the joyful side of this. But How did you land in the world of PFD? So I think like most people, you will hear say like, I never thought I'd end up in this side of the field. (laughs) That's pretty, (laughs) that's that's pretty true for me too. I thought um, going into graduate school, I was like, dysphagia, swallowing, I don't want to do that. I want to do hearing loss and I want to do cochlear implants. (laughs) And I want to do early intervention with hearing loss. And when I got to grad school, I had actually the unique situation where I had two amazing professors. One was an adult uh, professor who focused on dysphagia. And then I had a pediatric professor that also focused on dysphagia. And through them and through one of my clinical placements that actually was like a preschool for children, half the children had autism, half the children did not, I got immersed into the world of pediatric feeding disorders. Back then we called them feeding, you know, feeding disorders and swallowing disorders. They were kind of two separate things, but I got immersed into that and I fell in love and I kind of took a turn in grad school to pursuing a clinical externship in pediatric feeding at Cincinnati Children's. And then ever since then, I just kind of kept addressing and finding ways to work in this realm in a variety of different clinical settings. 
And I just really became really passionate about the field, about just, you know, this basic need of eating. I love to eat, you know, I'm a social person. I love to go out to eat with people, you know, in non-COVID times and hang out. That's just, you know, so much of what we do socially. And I was really just kind of, you know, taken aback even as a grad student about just how much even just, you know, having a very selective diet or having sensory issues, you know, related to feeding really impacted that family dynamic, that socialization. Um, and I was hooked. Um, and so I really just have, you know, seen it in every setting <laughs> that you could possibly imagine and just really feel really passionately about the topic. And, you know, that's how I kind of got to where I am today. Never thought I'd be here, but really, really love it and really passionate about the topic. I love that. Yes. Okay. So wait, where did you go to grad school that you landed a coveted practicum at Cincy Children's Hospital? Because that's a pretty sweet gig. Yeah. So I went to Kent State University. They, to my knowledge, I don't think had a student placement agreement when I wanted to go there, but one of my old professors had worked there previously. And so I was able to get a placement there as my last externship in grad school. So I packed up, I did the distance learning, you know, like Zoom in the class before that was like the cool thing that everybody did. (laughs) It was like a very interesting thing I had to like listen in on class while everybody was still in Kent. And I was out at Cincinnati for one class that we had that semester. And that was like really unique at that point because I graduated grad school in 2009. So, you know, that was like the spring of 2009. What is that? But yeah, that's where I went to grad school. I was super lucky to have that experience, especially back then to have two professors that, you know, were focused on dysphagia, but across the lifespan. And and really, I cannot thank them enough because really just them crossing my path completely changed my career trajectory and course and I don't know that I would, you know, have found my passion for this part of the field had it not been for the two of them. So I always like to say thank you, Dr. Cribble, and thank you, Dr. Riedel, for sending me on this path. I could not have done it without your advocacy, love, and support. So I always like to shout out and, and let them know that how grateful I am just for their guidance over the years because we still are keeping contact and we still are close. So <laughs> I like to at least give them credit where credit is due. Yes. There's a quote by Sir Isaac Newton that says, if I have seen farther than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And I think that's what every generation wants is they want to be the stepping stone for the next one. Sarah, if you're listening, one of my former students is over at Cincinnati and she texted me last week that she got promoted to inpatient NICU. And I'm just so excited for her because like, (laughs) yes, congratulations. Yes. I could not do that. They're too tiny. And I had preemies personally. So no, but let's take it from the top because, and y'all, we have to say thank you also to Feeding Matters because of their hard work, which is driven by interdisciplinary approach. Physicians across allergists, GI, pediatricians, SLPs, OTs, psych, all registered dietitians and caregivers, the work that Feeding Matters has done. We have an ICD-10 code coming in October that accurately captures pediatric feeding disorders for the very first time. Volunteers move the world. I'm just saying it's the volunteers that move the world. Okay. So on that note, Kristen, can you break it down for us? What is a PFD and how is it same different from a dysphagia diagnosis? So when we think about pediatric feeding disorders, you know, when I went to grad school, Michelle, probably when you were in school too, we talked about dysphagia and we talked about feeding and how they were related, but different. And, you know, I remember thinking that and hearing that and going, okay, I feel like that makes sense on paper. And then you get out in the world and you're like, yeah, that line is so gray, right? Like there's not actually that distinct difference all the time. We know our kids with dysphagia have feeding challenges, you know, and that kids that have feeding challenges can sometimes have dysphagia as well. And it's not that black and, and white and everything. I, I love to use the term is gray. Everything in, you know, our realm of pediatric feeding disorders, that line is so gray. Everything is so interconnected. You can't treat the oral phase without looking about the nutrition. You know, you have to look at all these co-occurring diagnoses. And so really when we think about it, even though even in dysphagia outreach, we talk about this a lot, like Yes, there is dysphagia, but dysphagia is actually just a small, is only one part of a pediatric feeding disorder. We are looking at that from a systemic, from a systemic view when we talk about pediatric feeding disorders. And I think that's just 
so important. I think all of us that have worked in this field and have worked with these patients for a long time have always appreciated how kind of, and going back to my term, how gray it all is, right? How everything is interconnected. We have to address the medical needs. We have to, you know, think about nutrition, the family dynamic, you know, attachment, bonding. And we have to look at all that in the context of oral and pharyngeal skills, right? It's a huge kind of topic to tackle. And we've all known that. But now really having this unifying diagnosis really drives that home, that, that ICD-10 code that really encompasses all of that psychosocial, oral sensory function, oral skill, you know, the medical domain, looking at everything, nutrition, you know, all holistically really finally paints the full picture that really before we all knew, but you were kind of, you know, in terms of giving it an ICT-10 code or thinking about it holistically, it, it was harder to kind of paint that picture to individuals who weren't immersed in it every day. But again, like you said, thank you so much to Feeding Matters for their advocacy to make sure that we really do now have this ICT-10 code that's coming out that really accurately shows what is happening with children that have pediatric feeding disorders and doesn't kind of try to silo it into these, you know, especially, well, they have this GI problem and they have aspiration and they have a nutrition. No, we're looking at the fact that these are all interconnected. We've all known it. And it's been such a struggle in the field to really get people who don't work with it every day to understand that interconnectedness. But I'm just so happy now to actually have this diagnosis that really accurately paints the picture for us when we think about pediatric feeding disorders, because it's really, it's been a long time coming. And I think even, you know, myself, I'm teaching, you know, the next generation of speech language pathologists, when I've, you know, started using this framework to kind of explain how pediatrics aren't little adults, right? They are a very different subset. Um, it really drives that point, <laughs> that point home to people. They're like, oh yeah, I see that now. You know, this isn't, this isn't the same. And they're like, oh, this is, they're, you know, not to saying that adults aren't as complex, but they're just different. I, you know, I never, I don't work with adults. I'm not an expert at DOP. I am the pediatric person amongst a lot of adult specialists who I admire um, implicitly. But I start talking about it, you know, through this PFD lens and they go oh, like, you know, it's just, a, it's a very different perspective to have. And so I really just think, you know, in peds, we don't think about it as feeding or dysphagia. It's all interconnected and it's all tied and, and all just so grossly tied even in those other realms that are outside of our scope, but really important for us to have that understanding of. So we know that we're looking at each child as an individual and, and holistically. Because like, you know, Michelle, there's nothing cookie cutter that we do in this field. It, each child's approach is individualized and we really have to look at all of those different domains when we're talking about pediatric feeding disorders and those kiddos we serve. For me, I feel like it brings validity and it brings validity to the thing that it is that I do, as well as I have peace of mind with my codes. As a practitioner, I can accurately identify what's going on and drop the appropriate ICD-10 code. But in my other hat, because I'm clinic coordinator and clinical assistant professor at Francis Marion University and home of the Patriot, Huzzah, it's a beautiful school, y'all, just saying. But over there, trying to teach the students on how to accurately code for CPD and IC10 codes, that's hard for them to wrap their brains around, especially when you have a child that has multiple etiologies. When you say they're not cookie cutter, I mean, I have a little guy who has Down syndrome, autism. He has exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, zero growth hormone factor, diabetes. I'm trying to think like what other comorbidities do we have. And he has stuttering. He bless his little heart. He's disfluent. And his mom's like, don't fix it. I love it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm not the person that touches fluency disorders. I can introduce you to this person. <laughs> but like that's, I don't treat language or Arctic or any of those things, not my bread and butter. But, but prior to all of this, one of the codes I saw was R63-3, like feeding disturbances. And I'm like, but that doesn't actually, that's not the right code for what's going on with this little guy. But then you have to code. And folks, when you're dropping the ICD-10 codes, remember to code backwards. So 
you're starting with what it is that you're treating going backwards to the overarching etiology. And that's something that I've seen practitioners get lost in the details. And those details are important because y'all, if we mess up how we simply add in codes, it inadvertently can be insurance fraud and code of ethics violations. So tiny detail, hugely hugely important. They even had that on at the Feeding Matters conference last two months ago. They were talking about the CPD codes. A lot of people are still erroneously coding 92507 treatment of language for feeding for PFD when it should be 92526 because of the underlying like swallowing feeding component. And y'all, tiny detail, huge, especially if you're in the world of private practice because insurance can come back and say, this is fraudulent activity and recoup all of their expenses. And it's on you the day your license is conferred to know how to do ICD or CPT codes. The ASHA has a ton of resources for that. But um, that's one of my soapboxes is making sure that we're coding right. So say you have a patient that you're working with who's five, who has cerebral palsy due to an intraventricular hemorrhage, and they have an oral pharyngeal dysphagia, I would code, you know, the new PFD code R1312, then the code for CP, and then the code for the IVH. And yes, that's a lot of ICD-10 codes, but that's telling you what happened. And you can look back to say, okay, well, that was the root cause. So yes, that's, that's, yeah, a soapbox. Tiny detail. <laughs> no, and I think it's a great soapbox too, because I feel like when you make sure that you code it appropriately, it gives people a cue to, you know, in their chart review, like, oh, I'm going back and looking for this, you know, this event, or I want to look back to see this is how we got here, right? Um, so you don't just get the kid with like the random like feeding disturbances and you're like, why? All I see is this code. I don't understand, you know, especially in outpatient or, you know, they're transferring from one facility to another. And you're like, I don't know how we got here. At least if you have a coding history, it at least gives you a direction to look, you know, even as the recipient, just getting a brand new client. So I think that's so important. And then of course, you know, the insurance ethical yes. coding and reimbursement <laughs> as well. Code of ethics, kind of important. Okay. But wait, you just, you just hit it on the head. Okay. So I come at this from a world of early intervention where we're flying blind and get zero medical records. I cannot tell you how many referrals I've gotten from pediatricians and it's like a NICU grad and they're like, maybe like six a week, eight week, you know, they're home and the referrals say pediatric aphasia eval and treat. And I'm like, Ooh, anomia, <laughs> but like, no, it's dysphagia, but the pediatricians are not necessarily familiar with even how to write the script for services. And that's it. Or I get a referral for therapy and then you walk in the door and the child is HIE, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And you're like, that changes what assessment I'm going to do when I walk in and we have a home health nurse with like a trach and a vent and all the things. And where are my medical records? I'm coming at it from my most recent clinical experience being in the school. So I can completely relate. You, you know, you get a copy of it, of an evaluation report or an IEP and you're like, okay, they've been in school, you know, either in like fourth grade or third grade, you know, and you're looking, you're like, how did we get here? Is this new? Is this old? And, and you're like, hmm, I don't know. Like you're literally sometimes flying in blind and you're like, help, <laughs> a little guidance, anything. Yes. How do you fix that? What resources do you use to help build community services when, because I mean, this is where the people that treat adults, I feel like they have better advantage because there's more continuity of care put in place. But us in the peds world, we're like, eh, maybe we should make that call. <laughs> so, right. And so, yeah. I mean, I've done it in EI. Like that's where I started. I went to the hospitals. I circled back around the community. Community is like where my, my heart is because if you ever, you know, talk to me outside of the podcast in person, you'll hear me say that it's like children don't stop having pediatric feeding disorders just because they left the hospital or just because they went to kindergarten or just because they turned three, right? Like there's not some magical off button. And, you know, not everybody has access to the services that they need geographically, right? I live um, in an area that's on the edge of like suburban and rural. And, you know, depending on where I am in this county, it really depends on if families have access to somebody that has the knowledge and skills of pediatric feeding disorders, which is why I got really passionate about, you know, making sure that we at least have access to addressing these kiddos needs when they're at school. 
And so it really kind of was a labor of love for me thinking about, okay, how do we get one buy-in on that interdisciplinary team? How do we build this program? And then two, how do I get the information that I need, right? Um, So I came into this role, I left an acute care job where I had, you know, nine times out of 10, all the information that I wanted at my fingertips. (laughs) And then I'm like, oh, no, I remember this feeling. (laughs) I remember this feeling of getting not enough information. Um, Thankfully, first of all, I have to give a shout out to, you know, my speech supervisor um, at my previous job, who was so supportive in helping to build this program, really bought in, really saw the need for, you know, meeting students' needs and, and making sure that children had access to what they needed. So when we were developing this program, you know, first of all, we reached out to the kind of founder of pediatric feeding disorder treatment in the schools, Emily Homer. And we had her come in. She's and a we, goddess. We brought her in. She did a training for to help because where I live, we have like a special education agency that then has contracts to all these local school districts because there's like we don't have county schools um, in Pennsylvania. So she came in and did a continuing ed and really helped us get buy-in. So there was, you know, that outside person coming in as the expert and saying, you know, this, this is relevant. This is why you should care. Kind of back up what we had been saying when we kind of used a lot of her tools and resources to get our program started, but we had to kind of tweak it because we're a smaller area. So one of the things that we did was when students were being referred for services in the schools, we actually, you know, made contact with the family, got family reports. So like, you know, I had a release, but I could sign, like uh, speak to them. They would sign a medical release so we could request records or have verbal conversations with the pediatrician or, you know, the PA, the MP, whoever was in there, you know, whoever was providing or coordinating their care. And then if they had had, you know, uh, interdisciplinary feeding team evaluation at a children's hospital or had, you know, had a swallow study, we could get access to that if the school didn't already have it. Sometimes the school had it, sometimes they didn't, sometimes it was, you know, they knew some, they were going for an exam. So they called me in, you know, ahead of time, that kind of stuff. But we really tried to build in these layers of, okay, you know, when I'm coming in, I need to be making decisions that are ethical based on me having as much information as possible. And also a lot of what I saw in school, because we all know how important environment is, right? That there were sometimes challenges children were having at school that their family wasn't having at home. And I had to kind of, you know, put on my investigative hat and be like, why? What's going on here? What's the difference? Or what are we do? You know, what little detail are we maybe missing by nobody's fault of their own, right? But families are just the expert on their children. So there are things that they just have done and always done a certain way because they're reading their child's needs and they're so in tune with their child's needs. And they don't even think to mention that maybe, right? I have a question because I have kids that do great at home and then we transition them over to the schools and the echo and reverberation and overstimulation of the cafeteria, the fluorescent lights in the cafeteria, the lack of foot support and spine support in the cafeteria seats. Like those are some of the variables that were unanticipated. I start going through like my caseload going, okay, well this, this, and this, what are uh, some of the other big transition variables that you have found? So one of the big things is positioning. One of the big things is being overstimulated in the cafeteria. I actually have like a great story about just how much the cafeteria is so different because I had a kiddo that I saw once that literally one of the barriers that we had for this kiddo was just that there was so many other smells. So depending, even though this kiddo brought their own lunch to school, depending on what was on the menu that day really could impact that child's feeding. So if it was something that was really fragrant, that was really aversive in terms of the smell, the child would gag, you know, gag, vomit, sometimes be, you know, not be able to eat, be really stressed out about being in that cafeteria, or, you know, even something as simple as I'm sitting next to somebody that has a food that they're eating that I, I can't stand the sight of the smell of, and then they're eating that, right? And then I'm expected, even though I have my own food, like that's bothering me. And so really just those sights, the smell and all of it together. But you're right. The positioning is such a it's such a huge barrier that I've seen as well. Some of the schools that I've gone into just have those little stools, you know, those little stool based, like each kid has a stool. It's not even like a bench. And then you have, you know, 
a kindergartner who's like barely five, you know, can't put their feet on the ground. And, and then they have, you know, maybe some mild deficits at home, but their feet are on the ground, and they're well supported, and they can chew. And all of a sudden, you know, they're taking a really long time. And they're, you know, they're having their gagging or their coughing, you know, and they're like, something's going on, come see them. And I look at them like step one, they're literally sitting on a swivel chair with their feet. like you know. <laughs> and so I'm like, let's put their feet down. And people are like, Oh, yeah, or like, I'll, you know, what I always did was to really try to do interprofessional practice. So, you know, if I went in as a speech therapist specialized in feeding, I work cooperatively with the speech therapist that was at the school and I'd pull in like the PT or the OT or, you know, whoever else I could get to come pull them all in. And sometimes like, I'd be like, oh, well, and you know, before I could even say it, what if there's to be like, the feet aren't on the floor. And I'd be like, yes, that's definitely a problem for us. Let's start there. But you're right. That's really one of those things. And I never even really honestly, and I'll admit this, I never thought about the role of, you know, children that have very restricted diets that are very smell averse, thinking about that in the cafeteria. But we all know that if you've gone to your kid's school or remember being in school, you know, they're cooking, you know, pizza or spaghetti, you know, that smell, it's everywhere. It's in the hallway. You know, you, you, you know, you're getting there. So if you're, you know, walking off to lunch and you're already from, you know, you're from a sensory standpoint, know that you're like on edge, oh, it's going to be like overstimulating for me. Right. And all of a sudden you're hit with this like aversive smell. You're like, you know, I'm done. I can't even do this at this point to go in there to eat. And so we had to do a lot of consideration for things like that. You know, is it something that maybe, you know, for certain days, like, you know, you try not to take kids out of their peer interactions, but sometimes, you know, if they're not eating, they can't access their curriculum. They can't learn. They can't focus. So really having to make those accommodations and then also working on, okay, how do we address this, you know, as a school system or how can the school address that to make sure that this isn't, you know, a persistent barrier, but this is something that we can kind of, kind of work through or that they can, you know, acclimate to in a supportive way and, and in not, you know, violating trust, obviously, from the caregivers. There's just so many more variables in school that I admittedly never thought of when I was even in EI or in a you know, outpatient that really were kind of eye opening when I walked into schools. And, you know, I walked into schools 10 years of experience. I'm like, I've been doing this my whole career. I know what I'm doing. And I'm like, Oh, my gosh, there's so much more here going on. Like, (laughs) learn something new every day. (laughs) I've had a couple interactions with the local school districts. And I'm coming at it from at the time that I was advocating for the patients, I was also concurrently on our state association board and like a multitude of positions, right? So like people knew me from those different realms, right? And one of the school districts when I was like, hey, we've got this kid, you know, at the time he was like six, we're working on self-feeding because, you know, he's not self-feeding. OT and I had been working on it in home health. And, you know, I was braced and ready for battle with the school district just because South Carolina, we don't have a feeding program overarching for the entire state, right? We don't either in Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's district by district. Yep. Yes. And so, and at the time when we first started down this road, it was, it was before any feeding was done. So like I was prepped and ready. I had all of Emily Homer's works printed and like right there, ready to go. Y'all check out her website. It's amazing. It has PDFs. It has how-to guides. It has PowerPoints. It has orientation slides for free available to train para pros and their roles and responsibilities. Okay. Just like, she has a wealth of knowledge and resources and so willing to share and such an advocate. And I've learned so much from her through my interaction. So yes, check that out. She is the authority, all information. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I had her on first bite Christmas before last. She was like a Christmas present to myself. If you are one of the people that needs the nitty gritty, like the legality details of it, she actually has a two hour webinar on Asha's website, specifically um, in conjunction with a lawyer all about the legal framework and legal precedents for school districts not providing services, which is just like 
for PFD. Okay, so squirrel. So back to the kid. So we go into this meeting and the mom goes, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. We sat down and the entire team was like, okay, so what do we need to do to help him learn to eat in school? And I was like, wait, what? What just happened? <laughs> like, I mean, I was like prepped. And they were like, no, seriously, walk us through what we need to do. And then they affected change. I mean, pandemic broke and, you know, we haven't gone back to school yet, but like we will in August and they've already reached back out. The school district is like, all right, we're ready to roll. Where is he at now? Let's get the IEP ready for the fall. And I'm like, this is amazing with a stark contrast to another little guy that I'm working with who has different genetic condition that correlated to ongoing esophageal strictures, right? And low delayed uh, growth rate and the strictures prevented larger boluses from passing. So when I picked him up, he was thin liquids only. Changed the formula over to a plant-based formula, overall started thriving, quickly progressed towards mech chop consistencies. And, you know, we can swallow purees and we're working on, and y'all, I'm using the older, I'm not using ITSY terms just because the local hospital here hasn't switched over to ITSY. So it's really hard to use ITSY framework when my community doesn't embrace ITSY just yet. It's South Carolina. We're working on it. When I went in and we just had our meeting last week and I was like, Hey, you know, this is what we're working on. We really need him because he's eight. We really, really need to work on progressing the diet at school. And I talked with the SLP. I was met with such hostility and it was, it was shut down and they finally acquiesced and wrote a goal, but wrote the goal that he would only progress to pureed foods. And I was like, you don't understand. He's already taking pureed foods. You can't say for a year's growth that he will safely consume pureed foods when he's doing that. Now we have to advance the bolus. And they're like, well, we can't give him an aid and he pockets the, the other foods. And I'm like, what you're doing is violating his access. And so, and I said all the right buzzwords on purpose. So next week we have a meeting with the director of SPED. And I'm like, I went in prepared for joyful outcome. And then to be met with a like complete firm, we're only going to go this far where I'm bringing the data showing, yeah, but we're actually doing that right now. I was just blown away. So help me, what do I do next? Guide me so that I don't, Make me less angry. <laughs> so I admit, like when I when I was in acute care, even I'd be like, I don't understand why are these schools not doing this, yes. right? Um, like it would make me so angry. And then I was like, you know, walk a mile in everybody's shoes, right? So, yes, so exactly. I made the leap. <laughs> I went, and I really, honestly, what you're describing is why I decided to go back to school, not back to school, like in general, but why I chose to go in EDD and an educational doctor is because. I realized as I started to make these recommendations and started to just say, hey, do you know that having, we know that having altered diets or, you know, individuals that need, have very restricted diets, they have concerns for missing micronutrients and not getting as many nutrients. We have all these nutritional concerns and we have all these ties for nutrition and learning, right? Like we know we have like free and reduced lunches because we know nutrition is so important to learning. So how do we bridge this gap? Like, where are we missing this leap? Like we spend millions of dollars. I think it was like $14.1 billion in like and um, federal funds the last time that I had looked on free and reduced lunches and free breakfast, yes. right? So we know nutrition and learning is important. We know individuals with dysphagia have, you know, nutritional and pediatric feeding disorders have, you know, nutritional deficits or high risk for that. We know that's tied to learning. So where is this disconnect? And what I really came to realize is we are SLPs working in an educational world, right? It is very rare that where I was, I had a lot of SLPs that were in positions of like special education, like supervisors, right? That is not the case more often than not. So normally there's an SLP, like maybe a lone wolf in a building, right? Maybe two, if you're really lucky and you're in a big school, it's like they're speaking French and the administrators are speaking German, right? There's like a language disconnect here. They don't understand it because it's nothing they've ever been told about. And when you learn special education law, 
because IDEA doesn't specifically state dysphagia, it starts to get lost in translation. And they're like, what is this dysphagia? I don't understand. I mean, like you said, sometimes even pediatricians are calling it aphasia. And you're like, no, they're a six-week-old. They can't have aphasia. It's dysphagia. You know, so we're Literally talking about- my life. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. So you're like, okay, it's dysphagia or pediatric feeding disorders. And then they go, okay, so the kid has like four foods they eat. It doesn't matter. Let's just feed them those four foods and they'll be fine. And you're like, no, you're missing the big picture, right? But BMIs do not count, by the way, folks. Just if somebody says, oh, but they're gaining weight, fine, on those four foods, get a complete metabolic panel, a CMP, in conjunction with the CBC. And then when you're looking at the numbers and they're like, oh, but the BMI is here, but oh my God, they're proteins in the toilet. Rar. Yes. Okay. So let's go. Yep. So I really found that I, you know, for me, what I would talk about a lot is I had to talk their language, right? So, okay, I am like an altruistic person. I just want to do what I, what what kids need, right? I know this is best. We turn, we teach kids to walk. We teach them to toilet in school. Why are we not teaching them to eat? It's a life skill. We have life skills classrooms. Like, you know, that was always like my soapbox. Like, don't you just want them to, isn't the goal of special education to create independent individuals, right? That can do at maximal potential, but that wasn't always effective for me. So what I ended up saying was, well, you know, this is a liability for you or you, if a family wants to take you to do process over this, you know, there isn't a policy, you know, at least in, in my state and in other states as well, like we don't have a policy, you can't have a policy that says, you know, we don't do feeding and swallowing services. IEPs are individualized, right? We have to look at the child in totality and meet their needs. And so I would really talk a lot about the fact that, you know, it's better to find the resource to get your SLP mentoring or contract out to a specialist or, you know, in my role, I was like, or, you know, reach out to me for su- to support your team to help meet these c- children's goals. Because just like we think about, right, okay, a kid doesn't want to stand up in front of the class and read a book report because they have a, an articulation error. They have R&L errors, right? If a child has a very restricted diet or has to be on pureed foods when everybody else is eating pizza, there's social impact of that, right? The cafeteria, I know historically for educators, and I get it, it, it is, I have walked a mile in these shoes. It is not a cakewalk to be a teacher. You know, it is not. It is, it is very hard to be a school SLP They are overworked and underpaid and um, underappreciated. So I love you all and think you are all doing very important work. So by no means is this a dig at all. But it's just hard when, you know, even if they want to fight the good fight, we're not talking the same language as those administrators. And so really talking about this is social impact. This impacts inclusion. This impacts their participation with peers. This can lead to, you know, like reduced friendships, reduced social impacts, and then tying it back to nutrition and learning. And then also talking about, you know, like it's expensive to go to due process. So, you, you know, you want to avoid that if you can, are all kind of the things that we really talked about. It is a lot easier to get buy in to meet kids' needs where they are in schools than to work on progressing. And it becomes a, such a very really an ethics conversation because you're like, you know, we really need to work on chewing and we need to work on progressing their diet. And they're like, okay, but my speech therapist has been here for 15 years and doesn't have that expertise. It's not an excuse that they can't, that they shouldn't provide that service. Right. So that's not like where the conversation should end, but it is a valid point. You don't want I mean, as somebody that's worked in pediatric feeding disorders my entire career, I don't want somebody that doesn't know what they're doing working with a child. We, we all know that's not going to end well for anybody. But at the same time, we have to make sure that kids are getting what they need, especially, especially in areas where they don't have access to any other resources. There are multiple places where school is the only place that students are getting services, right? They don't have access to outpatient. And so, you know, really talking about, you know, how do you share a resource, right? So like in my community, once we got buy-in when Emily came, they're like, okay, we understand now, right? Most of the schools are like, we understand this is important. We need to, at a minimum, you know, meet students' needs where they are. And then talk about how do we, you know, start moving towards therapy. But, you know, you can't kind of go from zero to like 360 miles per hour, right? You have to do it in an ethical 
way. And so what we ended up doing is really people shared me. So I, you know, we did kind of what we called like the low fruit first. So we looked at safety, we looked at, you know, who doesn't have appropriate documentation of even just what their accommodations are, right? How do we get that in place? And then from there, how do I identify maybe previously unidentified students that aren't getting outpatient services that do have a pediatric feeding disorder that could benefit from even at minimum some accommodations? Okay, let's do that. Now, how do we start thinking about building competency or recompetencing people that have, you know, maybe never used those skills they used in grad school to be able to at least identify and say, I know something's wrong, but I don't know what to do. And then reach out, you know, to me as that shared resource. And then from there, you know, we were moving towards conversations of like, how do we start providing therapy? And each district was kind of on their own timeframe with that. But I do think it's such a complicated topic, right? Because we want access to services, but it's not like, oh, go take one class and now you're competent, right? So it really is. Wait, hold hold on. Everybody, when you take a class, just because you take one class for PFD does not mean that you are competent. And please trust but verify because some people will have a class just to hawk you a product and it's not necessarily evidence-based. Dun, dun, dun. All right, sorry, continue. (laughs) Right, and it's just, you know, my husband is an adult SLP. You know, I have colleagues that work in other specialty areas. Like you said, fluency, that's a great example for me too. Like I would never claim to be competent in fluency, right? And and I wouldn't just take one class. That's what we have Craig for. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's what I have Craig for at Averro. Yep. (laughs) And Mary, him and Mary are, are, you know, that I'm like, Mary, Craig, SOS, that's you, which they would say the equal of, you know, side to me, like, oh my goodness, pediatric feeding disorder, Kristen, help, you know, but really, it really is a, a conversation about making sure that you identify and you start building infrastructure, but realizing that there is a way towards moving towards getting kids what they need. But putting your head in the sand and just pretending like, you know, oh, it's a pediatric feeding disorder, that's medical and we do educational, it's not, again, it's gray. It's not black and white. There are trainings, there is support, there is mentoring, there is a plethora of legal information that Emily Homer, like you said, has out there for everybody to know. Why is this something that we need to address? But making sure that you're not just doing it to check the box, right? Making sure that you're doing it in a way that we're really you know, we all got into the field to help. We're all helpers, right? We all want to improve. That's the reference. I always feel like our profession, we're allied health. We are called to be healers. But when we're doing that and we're pouring out of our cups, we need to make sure that what we're pouring out, one, is evidence-based that does take into account caregiver patient input. And two, that we're pouring into cups that want to be filled. That's the piece that I struggle with is that sometimes you're trying to have a conversation and you can clearly see you're attempting to have a crucial conversation, but you can see that the communication partner that you're engaging with, they're not even open to the dialogue. And so you gave perfect analogies when you use certain keywords like due process (laughs) that flips the script in the narrative. It does. And unfortunately, you know, schools are underfunded. IDEA funding, IDEA has never been fully funded. We just had a you know, ASHA Advocacy Day, Virtual Advocacy Day. One of the things that you could reach out and ask your legislators to do via that was fully fund IDEA because you're right. Some of this comes down to, unfortunately, budget. How do schools afford to train people to be competent in this area where, you know, they might have one, two, three, you know, how many students that really need that service, right? So that's where I think, you know, at least, and I'm biased because, you know, it, it was the model that I participated in, but I really think, you know, we have these specialists that we share within communities. So we have one, now we have two in our county, but two like assistive technology specialists that are there to support all the schools to help meet the needs of that lower incidence area and that specialty area. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for, okay, well, if you don't want to, tra- you know, you can't, don't want caseloads don't account for, you know, your SLP being trained in or training each SLP in each building to be competent, then can you share that resource, especially in states that have like county school boards, right? That's a little bit even easier than where I reside in Pennsylvania. So really sharing that resource, having one, you know, expert that comes and and helps at least get the ball rolling. And so you can start making 
steps in the positive direction. I think a lot of what I, at least my experience was, was like, okay, I recognize as an SLP, I need to do this. I also recognize that I don't have the competency to do this anymore. And I don't ever think I'll feel comfortable doing this. But now that I have access to you and you feel really comfortable with this, like I'm more comfortable following your guidance or following, you know, I'm not out there alone trying to do this. You know, I'm being mentored through this. I have guidance on what I need to do. And also realizing that you don't have to go from, you know, head in the sand pretending like dysphagia doesn't exist or, or not touching it at all to like 100% treating every student that you see, right? Like you can build supports and systems and competency along the way, just like we all do, right? Like think about grad school. We don't like, you know, give give students a case of like 50 students, like 50 kids to service on the onset. We build them up slowly. There is a way to do that while still meeting students' needs and making sure that they have access to what they need. I mean, we really can do a lot. And and we really have, I think, a role that we need to, we need to advocate for these students that, and these children in the community that otherwise won't have access to the services that they need. And we all know early intervention is best, right? So we really want to get in there, get in there early and not let this go unaddressed until they get much older, because it's really going to have lifelong impacts. So that's my soapbox. You know, it's that I think ignoring it isn't the way, it doesn't, negate any liability for you, you know, in terms of a school. And really, it's not in the best interest of the kiddos, but there is a way to do it in a well thought out, systematic plan. Even like I said, when we had Emily Homer come in, I was all like, I want to give therapy to everybody. And everybody's like, yes, but... Baby You're steps. one person and there's like 180 kids, right? right. Like, <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, let's start. They're like, okay, let's just start with like identifying the students that like, you know, haven't even had this written in their IEP. Like, okay, that's actually probably sounds like the great place to start. But really, you know, small baby steps in the right direction, really, you can get a lot of change done that way and grow capacity and grow buy-in. It was just amazing to kind of be able to see that switch, to see people not really get like, like, oh, there's this medical SLP that came to the schools that she like barking up this tree about, right? <laughs> and then people being like, I have this kid, SOS, like, <laughs> which was great. So I thought it was a, you know, a great experience. But what I did, what the outcome for like that one kid that we had to struggle with the school district and we're having the follow up, I did offer to go in and do training and orientation. And they were like, yes, we, we want you to do that. And like, I, I told them I'll do it for free. Like, I'm not charging. Like, this is, I mean, heavens to Betsy's. I would give, a, I, I give away my time as much as possible because, because that's what we're supposed to do. Knowledge should be free. Knowledge should be shared. It shouldn't be hoarded because how are we supposed to process and improve if it's cost prohibitive for everybody, right? Right. Especially for schools because they don't have the money. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is why we are doing understanding dysphagia, y'all. <laughs> but like, I digress. Yes. Okay. So, but we did do that. But then I circled back around to when we got done with the call. A couple of different thoughts. One, Dr. Reva Barwell with Saver Ease. I love her. She's doing research with a, I can't remember now, I think it's a university in Oregon with an SLP out over there with individuals, uh, pediatric patients with Down syndrome. I think it's Oregon. Might be Washington, but I'm pretty confident it's Oregon. And they're actually doing research on the act of mastication correlating to improved cognitive scores based off of, it's a reverse study. So previously there was research that was published on when adult patients stop chewing due to like progression of like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's disease, how, and they go from like an advanced diet to like a puree diet, how they actually see a increase in the decline of cognition, right? So I guess the premise was reverse. If we improve the oral diet such that the little ones start to chew more, will we see an improvement in like a cognitive task, right? Which 
That's profound. And so my hypothesis is that yes, yes, we will. I think that progressing a diet, there's so much motor planning and cognitive growth that has to happen in that progression that I think that they you'll see, I think the outcomes of the results will be absolutely delightfully, positively staggering. So I'm just fingers crossed on that. But it then made me flip the script to the next step of if we did a better job of engaging in community supports and catching these patients within the framework of early intervention such that they got the services and they went into the school districts with that transition from IFSP to IEP, knowing that they were receiving PFD services in EI and that was already there to me, that would make for a smoother transition because you're absolutely correct. It is ADLs. It is routines-based. It is, it's part of our self-help skills that are addressed, especially in high school for that transition period for our teenagers with special needs, which is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart because I have an adult special needs brother-in-law. And like we made our part of our house handicap accessible for Uncle Matthew Monster. Sorry, that's what we call him is Uncle Matthew Monster. But I mean, he's a 43, he just turned 44, 44 year old man with CP and intellectual disability, ASD, a cortical vision impairment. And he had those self-help skills to learn how to do what it is that he can do. And part of it when he was little was learning how to feed himself. And so we have to set them for success. But on that note, there is research from Feeding Matters that pediatric feeding disorder, the average prevalence is one in 37 children under the age of five in the United States. So y'all check out their social media stuff. But I truly, it's on us. If we as the subject matter expert in PFD and dysphagia are not communicating and engaging in screens or advocating that our pediatricians participate in the PFD screener that's available for free from Feeding Matters that was created by physicians or in conjunctions with physicians that actually accurately captures, I think, the, like in excess of like 97% children with a PFD, like even tiny little ones, infants and toddlers. If we can get the pediatricians across the nation to incorporate that when they have their developmental ASQ screens that every new parent has to do at like 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 18, 24 months, then we would catch these kids earlier. Take ownership of that, y'all. Like, let's advocate. Take the screens. Take it to the pediatricians. Have the conversations. Let's get this focused, pushed in through early intervention so it makes for a smoother transition into our LEAs, wait, LEAs, local education agencies. Boo, yeah, got it right. Huzzah, I got it right, right? LEA. Yeah, you are. Yep, LEA. And that, I mean, we have transition meetings all the time. So, you know, I originally went and was a preschool early intervention therapist before, you know, and even when I was doing this feeding role, I was still splitting time between that role and feeding. And when I was working, you know, in public education, I was preschool. So we have these meetings of kiddos coming in from, you know, birth to three, sorry, children coming in with birth to three services for pediatric feeding. And before we had this program, I suspect what was happening was that information was like following, falling off, right? It was like, oh, well, we don't know what to do with that. It was falling off. Then it was actually following through, like they, you know, they would come into the program, they would be getting feeding services, I would get consulted, I would, you know, we would get into that IEP. It would remain in that IEP. They'd have, you know, a feeding eval that was like separate and a plan and all these things that we would put in place. And then when they transitioned from preschool early intervention, they transitioned to the school. And that was actually part of their transition meeting. Then it would be like, this child has an identified pediatric feeding disorder. Here is what's been happening. Here's what's going on. You know, so even if they, you know, if they had thickened liquids or, you know, they needed a special cup, whatever it was, it was in there. Um, because the first year or so of this, I would get, uh, you know, we have this new kid, help. <laughs> we don't know what we're supposed to do. And it really kind of made that transition a little bit, a little, not a little bit, a lot smoother because that information was following through and then it was able to be traced back. You know, they were born prematurely. They have this diagnosis, this, you know, talking back to that coding, it was like our educational version of ICD-10 coding. Like we could follow it back and you could understand 
why the child had these accommodations and what they were for, or what the recommendations were and why. And really, it just brought a lot of attention to even just cluing people in, you know, special education teachers, PCAs, like, pay attention to this, you know, how do we, before COVID hit, I was actually doing a training series in our um, special needs school with our PCAs, our personal care aides that were, you know, assigned to students that needed an attendant or a one-on-one all the time and saying, you know, lunch isn't your, you know, time off for these individuals, you know, this is what we need to look at. And I cannot tell you the number of really awesome, awesome, you know, support staff that would say, you know, I have a concern (laughs) about this child. And they were dead on, you know, (laughs) they knew that there was something, you know, that this child needed that they were charged with. And so, again, you know, really that IPP is so important in IPE, you know, working as a member of the team. I think we think about that a lot in the hospital is like, or even, you know, in education, like we're working with the doctors and we're working with the other therapists, but I had to work with cafeteria workers, right? Like I had to actually work with the people in the cafeteria. Like how do they know what this person's like diet level is, right? And how do they know, like, and how do we modify that? How do we make sure that they have access to something that they can consume safely? And so really some of my most meaningful interprofessional practice really came with collaboration for those, you know, one-on-one aides and people in the cafeteria because they were, you know, kind of that frontline person. It was just really, really important to be that resource to them. I think there's just a lot of fear, right? I'm, I'm in charge of keeping this child safe. That's my job as their aide or, you know, oh no, I'm the cafeteria worker and now I have to, you know, make sure that this child gets what they need. And I don't understand, (laughs) you know, I don't understand what this means. I wasn't trained in this and it's terrifying to me and I just want to do right. And, you know, I don't want to harm a child. Nobody wants to harm a child. Um, Nobody, you know, gets, says, gee, I want to go work in a school because, you know, I I don't really want to work with kids. No, they all just want to do the right thing. And so we, you know, actually... I provide a, I provided a lot of um, ITSI resources pre-COVID to our cafeteria. Like, this is how you can check if it meets the diet level. So, you know, shout out to ITSI there because everything is so parent and caregiver friendly. But it was also really great for, you know, our PCAs, for those cafeteria workers to be able to say, oh, does this meet the recommendation? Oh, well, you know, do I have a syringe? Do I have a fork? <laughs> like, I can do that, right? And check my diet level. And it was, and they had them hung. Like, they had it. Like, you know, they knew what they needed to do to check it. And then it would be, it wasn't funny, but I would always like find joy in the fact that if I was in the hall in that building, you know, and I'd be walking past the cafeteria, one of the agents say, Kristen, I need you to come look at this. Like, I don't think this is right. Is this right? And I'd be like, no, it's not good catch. They'd be like, okay, I thought not because, and they would like explain to me, you know, through itsy testing, what was right or wrong. And I was like, oh, like, Yes, like, I don't have to worry. And I think, you know, just even for families, like running it back to families, families really, when you look at like, I mean, there was just a study that came out in 2020 that was looking, I think it was Simeon did it. But anyways, it was family centered outcomes where they were looking at like, what do families want from their intervention? And they really just want to know that, you know, their, that their child is getting the services that they need, that they really are being included in that kind of decision making, they're sending their child to school, they want to know, you know, especially for children that can't tell them what happened during the day, right? They want to know that that the school's got it, um, and that the school really understands. So I found just a lot of building that home to school to the medical provider bridge, getting us all on that same page from the onset and then explaining to the family, you know, your child needs this diet level, right? And I, and here, here's how we've explained it to the uh, support staff. And here's how, you know, we've ITSI trained them so they know how to, to do this. And I provided that support. It really gave families comfort. And then they would know, oh, you know, I know that there is somebody that they can access to that's going to make sure that, you know, my child gets what they need at school. And it's really just such a such a relief. And there are some benefits at school. I've seen, you know, we talked about the downfalls of the cafeteria, but I also saw a lot of positives, especially for kids that were looking at expanding diet variety, right? Like having that peer social modeling, you know, we talk about that, like my first training was SOS training. And so I always think about that, like, you know, holistic approach. But having that peer modeling, you know, is really really sometimes a positive in a school for some kiddos. And so really, you know, there are benefits there, there too, not just barriers. And I think, you know, a lot of good can be done on making sure that we address these needs 
in school. But again, there's just so many resources out there to make sure that, you know, students have what they need at school and making sure that we build community-based programs that meet student needs and, and looking at them, their needs holistically. And really, I mean, feeding is the paramount life skill in, in my lens. And maybe I'm biased, but I mean, walking, talking, toileting, eating. I mean, you don't have to use the toilet if you don't eat. Like, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Build a team because eating is as important as toileting. Huzzah! (laughs) Also, on that note, I'm a boy mom, and honest to God, this past week, there was a streak of poo on the wall above the toilet paper, and I was like, which one of you did this? And nobody wanted to lay claim to that. They were like, not me, not me. And I'm like, no, this one of you gross tiny humans missed when you were reaching for toilet paper. L- acknowledge this. So, yeah, that's what I bring. I'm the comedic sidekick to this, Kristen. That's my job. <laughs> I have a girl and a boy. I have a older daughter and a younger son. And the best is when gross things happen. Oh, you know, you, you can kind of always assume it's the boy. But normally my daughter's the one that finds it. And he'll go, I didn't do it. It was you. And she's like always mortified. She's like, no, this is doing me. Like, I not do that. <laughs> oh, no, I live in fear of the day that my house smells like a frat house because boys get stinky really, really early. <laughs> yeah, we promise this is connected to PFD because this is real life here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, wait. <sighs> Kristen, thank you. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. At the end of the day, everybody, we're on one big, beautiful team. Like, We go from being a NICU SLP and having a patient there to they get sent home, they're in early intervention, they're in an outpatient clinic. If they have a chronic debilitative degenerative prognostic disease, they could end up needing services all the way through IDEA Part C, which is early intervention, Part B, which is 3 to 21, Part A for adults. Or say they recover from needing services at a young age and then develop a head and neck cancer when they're, I don't know, in their early 30s or 40s and they need speech pathology services there. Y'all, dysphagia happens across the life continuum and we are all on the same community team. That's the purpose of interprofessional practice. Teamwork is the dream work, really, honestly. I could never have been effective in my role as just a lone wolf in the schools. It was an all hands on deck team approach, you know, and I, we had the best outcomes when we did it that way. So it's not a territorial thing. It's not a, it's a, let's just pull our heads together as an interdisciplinary team. Let's all bring our own lens and expertise to the table to tackle this problem that this child is facing and make sure that we're able to address it. Because at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's about the patients and the children and the families and really having a positive impact on their life and on their recovery or on their, you know, their progress and their habilitative services, depending on what end you're talking about of the, of the dysphagia spectrum. But yeah, we're all on the team. There is no dysphagia or PFD island. We all need to just come to the team together. And I think tying it back to the topic at hand of PFD too, like that diagnostic code really in the pediatric world shows that there isn't one person that's going to quote unquote fix this for somebody. It is a team approach, all hands on deck and really all of us together or what working together for a common goal is really what is going to make the positive impact on these children's and families' lives and really change their course, right? Change their life trajectory for the better if we all just work together cooperatively with evidence and, you know, practicing at the top of our license. So I think that's just like, to me, that's the take home. Like these needs are everywhere. So we just all need to all hands on deck to make sure that we're building, you know, resources across the service continuum that really meet these these kiddos needs and adults needs, you know, as individuals grow, develop. That's where Dysphagia Outreach Projects comes in when she's talking about across the life continuum. If you have a patient in need and there are not community services there, say you have a patient that needs a specific formula or an adaptive equipment or something like that, that's what DOP 
can do and can offer. They can put the tangible necessary products through the blessings that have been donated to this nonprofit, 100% volunteer-based organization. Y'all, everybody with DOP is everybody that sits on their board of directors. Nobody collects a salary. Everybody does this out of the goodness of their heart and all of the profits, all of the money that comes in immediately get turned and pushed back out to the community. So please, if you're in need, if your patient is in need, reach out to DOP and make requests. Kristen, can you tell folks how to find DOP? Where in the social media world can y'all be found? So we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. We also have a website that you can link to and actually have your patients across the lifespan that you can have them ask for support or make a donation. It's asiaoutreach.org. And you'll see right there at the top when you log in, there's a make a donation button. And then there's also a middle of the page, there's an apply for assistance. It's an online application. And again, you know, this is really why we're here. We know that having, you know, we know families from my perspective with PFDs have a lot of stress. And a lot of that stress is because there's so much financial weight on these families. And so really, if we can alleviate some of that and and level this playing field so people don't have to think about, well, do I pay the electricity or do I buy, you know, thickener and seven different varieties of cups so I can figure out how to get my child off the bottle, right? (laughs) Or, you know, we're really there to help support families and support therapists to be able to get their families and their patients what they need. I know when I, even in the schools and in EI, I bought so many things for families and just gave it to them because I knew they needed it. And if they couldn't do it, I I just did it because I, you know, wanted them to have what they needed. And so we know that we've all done it. We've all been there. And so that's really where DOP grew out of. We're we're really the three co-founders. And then I was so honored to be asked to join because really, we're just here to help. We're 100% volunteer, like you said, and we're just really here to help those patients and families make sure they get what they need and, and try to lighten that financial load. And hopefully by doing so, lighten that stress and emotional burden that comes with, you know, having dysphagia or caring for somebody that, that has a pediatric feeding disorder. So yes, that 100% volunteer, you know, just trying to do good and put good back into the world and have a resource for families that may not otherwise have access to, to what they need or would have to really, you know, struggle. Nobody should have to make those choices. And so that's why we're here to help. All right, y'all. So there you have it. Go follow Dysphagia Outreach Project on Instagram, on Facebook. Check out their website. Kristen, you're awesome. So thank you for coming on. And now I'm going to sweet talk you into coming on first bite. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) It was my pleasure. I had such a great time talking with you and you were amazing as well. I'm just honored that you asked us to participate and, and that I got to speak with you today. So thank you again. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Don't forget, hit us up with some joyful, positive reviews on Apple Podcasts. We love it when you give us five stars. And I would personally love to see when you write a review, tell us what you love about dysphagia. Tell us what you love about PFD. Tell us why you wanted to be an SLP and why you want to advocate. So put good out there. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. Bye. Hey friends, thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining speechtherapypd.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, June 1st to June 30th, 2021, For every registration with SpeechTherapyPD.com that uses the coupon code capital D, capital O, capital P for Dysphagia Outreach Project, $10 will come off every single subscription, every price, whether you want the little package or the big package, and that $10 will in turn be donated to Dysphagia Outreach Project. So if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice, to pay it forward a little bit more, join speechtherapypd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all.